Welcome to the Mike and Much Podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am here with my friend and trusted producer, Max Kerman. Hey, Mikey. How's it going? Pretty good. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, <laughs> we, we're trying something a little different on this pod. Mm-hmm. Um, we did the opening with our friend and uh, the wife of Arkell's guitarist, Mike DeAngelis, Molly Hayes. Molly Hayes, who's an, who's an old friend of ours, one uh, who is a bit of a hotshot around town in Hamilton. That's right. She's a writer for the Hamilton Spectator, for Vice, and she's been covering this um, Tim Bosma murder trial. Murder trial. And we want to have her on the show because just in the open, just to sort of shoot the shit about what it's like to cover a murder trial because true crime has never been more popular, I'd say. And this murder trial was one of like the biggest in Canada in, you know, who knows how long. Absolutely. And something that is like, you know, it feels like a very local crime story became very national very quick. Yeah. So we were going to have her as just the open, but then we started talking to her and then it became clear in about five minutes that she should just be the feature guest. Yeah. I mean, she ended up uh, getting into, you know, all of the details of the trial. She obviously has been the main reporter on this case, and she knows her shit, and it's very compelling. And If they ever make a doc, she'd be, like, the main reporter that they interview, probably. Easily. 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 Yeah. Uh, so, long story long, uh, we decided to move that to the sort of the feature conversation. So, we're going to jump into that in a bit. But first, Max, how you been? I'm doing pretty good. Um, true crime has actually been on my mind a lot lately because uh, it's the only thing I, I will watch on TV. Basically. I know you consumed uh, the OJ show. Yeah, the OJ doc, which is... Uh, like the doc or the well, recreation? Both. The FX show is amazing, the recreation. And the then FX. ESPN put out this doc. Five-part doc. Yeah, that is eight hours is long. That I will watch. Yeah. I can't is, wait. It's amazing. Yeah. And, of course, we were all consumed by making a murderer. In, That's true. Yeah. Uh, the Netflix original series about uh, Stephen something or other in Wisconsin. So, okay, so th- here's a question. So those are two very different crimes. I get why people are... I guess my question is, why are people so fascinated by certain crimes? Is it, you know, for OJ, he's famous, he's affluent, he has money, and he, you know, allegedly murders <laughs> his <did>. ex-wife. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm not going to pass that out. Yeah, he did it. Uh, but so it's like, <laughs> that I get, oh, 100%. Yeah. Now, Stephen Avery, that feels like injustice on some level. I think there's the same thing with uh, Adnan Saeed, Serial. Uh, uh, yeah. So it's like, so the, the hook there is that maybe these guys have been um, framed or wronged. So it's like, I think people love a good conspiracy. Sure. So that, there's the draw there. With Tim Bosma and what happened here in Ontario, what is the draw there? Why were people into it? Well, as Molly will tell you, because uh, she, she describes the case inside and out, uh, is that it's just the most random killing. And a lot of times when a murder happens, it's for a reason. And, and diving into th- to those reasons is interesting in itself. But this, this case is the most random murder ever. And it could have been anyone. Yeah, because he, this poor guy put up an ad on Kijiji to sell his truck. He's a church-going family guy in his yeah. early 30s. And now he's dead. So uh, Molly Hayes, uh, we're going to shift her rate to sort of the, the, the meat of the, uh, the pod. This, and is, she's, this is what happens when you're so damn good. She's been following it for three years, I think she said. Uh, yeah, three years since, since it happened. Too, she's been in it at the ground floor. Um, yeah, she, she's, uh, she's great. Yeah, and I, I feel like we're, we're really lucky to have such a good, smart, talented group of friends around us doing interesting shit. And uh, Molly is definitely one of those people. Let's get to it. 
Molly Hayes. Molly Hayes is here. And now, Molly, how's it going, first of all? I'm good, thanks. That's great. Yeah, Molly is uh, the star reporter for the Hamilton Spectator. Big time. And has a very interesting <laughs> job. You've been right in the mix of the Tim Bosma murder trial. And I was thinking, I was talking to Mike about what should we do with this week's show? How can we try new things? And, uh, and we you said... You something know, really fun. No, yeah, well, not fun. <laughs> a laugh are, riot. Yeah. yeah, a real riot. But uh, we, we have a lot of friends that have really interesting jobs. And Molly's sort of at the top of the heap there. So uh, we said, let's ask Molly what it's like to be a reporter on a high-profile murder case, especially with kind of true crime stories being so relevant these days. So we just wanted to... To ask you a bunch of stuff. So first of all, Molly, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, First, I guess for our listeners, so you've been covering this, uh, the the Bosma murder trial. Mm -hmm. And this is a national story, but maybe for our listeners uh, that aren't super familiar with it, just give us a quick sort of rundown on what what that's all about. Sure. So I've been covering this for years now, literally since day one. It started back in May 2013. Uh, Tim Bosma was an Ancaster dad. He was 32. He was a church-going suburban dad, uh, newly married, had a toddler, um, and he had a truck. He, he ran his own business, and he had this this big uh, pickup truck that he was looking to sell, uh, swap out for something new. So he posted it for sale online on Kijiji and Auto Trader, uh, and he was just looking to make some extra money. Um, on May 6, 2013, he took two men out for a test drive. They'd called him a couple days earlier looking to set something up. They came by the house. They walked up the driveway. They met his wife. Uh, and the three of them left that night. Uh, it wasn't until about a week later uh, that police officially announced that that he had been killed. Um, but Della Millard and Mark Smith were the two men that that had showed up that night and took him for a test drive. And it would later come out, uh, years later now, at the trial, um, that this essentially was just over this pickup truck. These are two guys looking for a truck. He had one, and they were willing to kill to get one. Wow. So... Okay, this goes down. So let's go back. So when did this happen? Did you say 2013? Are you reporting already for the Hamilton Spectator? Yeah, so I was I was a rookie then. So I just started about a year earlier. Uh, and it didn't start out as a murder case, obviously. It started out as a missing persons case. So we got the notification from police that this guy had gone missing, uh, which is a really common thing. I mean, police get tons of missing person calls, uh, and we get tons of missing person press releases. So nobody really thought much of it. Um, but this was one day after he disappeared. So I was assigned to go out to the house in Ancaster and, and just kind of see what was up. We'd seen rumblings on social media that there might be more to this one. Uh, and when I got there, there was like just tons of pickup trucks lining this driveway. And there were cars and there were tons of people. And it just clearly there was something more to this story. Uh, so it was literally from kind of from that day that I became involved and, and slowly got to know the family and, and learn the details that this wasn't what a lot of people assumed was maybe a guy who just had taken off or who uh, had some kind of darker secrets that... that had so it wasn't like he was like, oh, he, he had a propensity for going on drug binges. Or, or had something. some nefarious past where maybe like... No, there, there was nothing. But for a long time, I think that's what a lot of people assumed. They assumed he must have been in some sort of biker gang or that he'd pissed somebody off or that he had a drug debt. Um, but none of that was true. He was a totally random target. And I always wonder, like, how do you feel about going on like to the family and saying like I'm with the spectator can you give me a comment or can we talk how does that process work or is it different with each uh person you have to go talk to I mean again in this case when it started out it wasn't a murder case so I wasn't asking them to talk about somebody they just lost uh in that case I was asking them to to tell me about 
Tim and about what had happened to help them find him. So in cases like that, I mean, they want to talk to the media for the most part because we're helping them. We're getting the word word out. out. Yeah, exactly. Um, And obviously at a time that was probably easier because there wasn't social media to compete with. They don't necessarily need us the same way now. Um, But I'm pretty generally surprised by by how uh, gracious people are. Like it's never comfortable going up to someone when they've lost, especially like a child or something, or they've lost someone in some horrific way. Uh, but for the most part, people are pretty willing to talk and they want to, like they want to focus on how somebody lived and not just how they died, because that's usually without their voice, what the story ends up being about. Okay. So let's go back to the case for a second, because it gets super fascinating. And this is where it sort of captures the attention of not only Hamilton, but like the national news media is the two guys that ended up resting are real like characters out of like villains out of like a Batman movie or something. Yeah. So describe how they got caught. And then describe your interactions with them. Sure. So again, the guys that were arrested in this and, and later convicted, but I'll talk about the arrest now. Um, their names are Del Millard and Mark Smitch. They were young guys. Del Millard was 27. Mark Smitch was 25. And Millard's kind of like a hunky dude, right? Yeah. I mean, they both are. Mark Smitch definitely had kind of a like Eminem, like wannabe <laughs> rapper vibe going, okay. like oversized hoodies and shaved head and kind of buggy. And he made rap videos looking. too and stuff, right? He did. He made some rap videos. You can find them online if you are so inclined. Okay. Can can you spit? Give us a review, maybe. Who? Kind of indescribable. I mean, (laughs) pretty much what you'd imagine: like shirtless, rapping very intensely at the camera, right? uh, Talking about girls and money and drugs and stuff. He admitted in court he had none of. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that always the way? That's always the case. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. Yeah. So So, so that was Mark Smitch. Um, He was kind of cast in the media early on as as the sidekick. So there were two of them. Del Millard was uh, a couple years older. Um, he had more of a, a surfy hunk kind of vibe, for sure. He he was a good-looking guy. He had money. He was very confident. He was very charming. He'd actually been in the media before, so it was kind of interesting when we initially started searching his name, finding all these articles from when he was a kid, because he had some record. I think he was like the youngest helicopter pilot in Canada, or the youngest person to fly both a plane and a helicopter. He came from an aviation family or something. Yeah, like a dynasty. Like they had planes, they had a giant hangar out at the Waterloo Airport. They had lots of properties. This was not a guy who needed to steal a truck, never mind kill somebody for one. So when he gets arrested, when they both get arrested, what's the thought process? Do you immediately start going... It doesn't make sense. This kid comes from money. He has, like, by all accounts, a pretty good life. Like, where does your mind go when he specifically gets arrested? I mean, there were so little facts available in the beginning that that it didn't make sense. But a lot of times things don't make sense at the beginning when you're just starting to piece stuff together and there's still so many holes in the story. Uh, I think what's so unique about this one is that we expected those holes to be filled in in a rational way. And they never were. Um, because there is no why. There was no reason. This, I mean, one of his friends described in during the trial that the only reason he could see him having to steal a truck was for the thrill. And that is as close to anyone has come to explaining this. Any rationale. So, and I remember hearing a story about you visiting Millard in jail. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Because when I heard that, I was like, what is she doing? Molly, come yeah. on. It's a weird job to explain to people well, around you. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> neither of them really talked to me at all. I mean, they have lawyers. They have hotshot lawyers. They're instructed not to talk to reporters. Um, but Della Millard was a little chattier. How did you get in if they weren't talking to reporters? I just didn't describe myself as a reporter. I mean, I look around their age. I look pretty young. I mean, I go to a lot of places to do interviews, and people are like, you're a reporter, you're a kid. 
So I think who was that invitation of? It's <laughs> an angry old man, an unnamed on the porch. city councilor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of here, kid. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I mean, I don't think anyone would necessarily have assumed I was a reporter. I wasn't wearing a blazer or anything. I was. 23 at that time. So that's crazy. So so you take the initiative at that point to just go to the jail and see if you can get in and talk to him and visit him. Yeah, because again, it, I mean, at this time, there were so many holes in the story. And and even as it progressed, it's only fair to get both sides of the story. Of even course. if both sides are not... Um, both sides are not innocent. Obviously, this guy now has been convicted of murder, but that's still a valid side of a story to hear. There's something to learn from that. So we wanted to ask some questions about what happened. I mean... I kind of knew they wouldn't tell me, but right. it's worth a shot. <laughs> so once you realize it's going to work, like, are you nervous? Are you like, you know what you're going to say, but it's like, holy shit, this is actually going to work. I'm going to be sitting across from this guy who is accused of this murder. Yeah, it's nerve wracking. I mean, there, there's that. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty safe place. Of all the places to to meet somebody accused of murder over a glass screen is is pretty safe. But it's also just nerve wracking. Like, holy shit, this is a huge story. I'm the first person to try and get him in jail. I hope this works kind of thing. So there's that as well. Um, it didn't, of course. When you sit down, do you identify yourself right away as a reporter? Yeah, I didn't I didn't hide that from him. And, and I wouldn't, I mean, if they'd asked me at the desk, I would have said I'm a reporter. Um, there's no law against that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's up to him to either accept or deny the visit. Uh, so he comes out. Uh, we have to be in kind of this special room. There's two rooms for visits. One has a bunch of individual little uh, desks, I guess. Um, and multiple people have visits side by side. And then there's another one that's private. And that's for people who are uh, who can't be in that other kind of area. Um, obviously, this is a high-profile case. He just got there. So he was in this little special room. Um, and he kind of immediately said, oh, I, I can't talk to you. Uh, I wish I could. The only thing I remember from it that, that stood out was that he told me it was precious that I was there. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was a pretty quick visit. Uh, and then from there, I... I had to Toronto to, to see what I could get a smitch. And similarly, very little. Again, told me, can't talk to you. Wow. So, okay, so so for our listeners who don't know how this ended and how the crime went down, can you describe what evidence came out that you know, describes how, how these guys killed Bosma? Sure. So the, the trial, what, which took place just this year, it was uh, basically January through till June 2016. Um, there were, like, close to 100 witnesses, tons of evidence, a lot of digital evidence, which is interesting. I can tell you more about that. But... Um, essentially what came out is that these guys had been planning to steal a truck for a while. It was Del Millard who wanted one. Uh, Mark Smith didn't even have a driver's license, but he was helping out a buddy. Um, and they had been looking for trucks online. Uh, they'd actually called two other people in the days leading up to Tim Bosma's test drive. Um, they actually went on one the day before with this Toronto guy named Igor. Uh, Igor testified at trial. He's like this huge hulking man uh so there was kind of this sense that well maybe he was too intimidating um, they were gonna do that guy but they lost the nerve probably when they saw him i mean that was kind of a theory presented right. obviously because yeah, didn't he say that he was like an israeli hitman or something yeah he'd been in the israeli army and, and so that was kind of the the narrative that came out at court is he says in the in the truck while they're out on this test drive he said there was kind of a weird vibe in the truck but that at one point mark smith had said what did you do in the army and he said you don't want to know and he said at that point, he kind of sensed this shift in the truck and the mood changed. Um, but then, I mean, they just drove back to his place and, and the test drive was over. But then the next day was the Tim Bosma test drive. So, and actually two days before, so one day before the Igor test drive, Dylan Millard had showed a friend of his, his roommate, um, one of the ads they were looking at online. He showed him this picture of a truck and said, should I steal it from the nice guy or from the asshole? 
And the roommate was like, oh, fuck off. Like, you don't need to steal a truck. And he says he didn't take him seriously because he was like, you just have no reason to do that. And he kind of dropped it. Um, But then on May 7th, so three days later, one day after Tim Bosman disappeared, he asked him if he got his truck and he said he did. So the the Crown's theory, and and they were convicted, so we're going with the Crown's theory here, with that they shot him shortly after he left his house. So from there, they headed up to Waterloo. Della Millard, again, very rich. He had a a farm there and an air hangar at the airport. They go to the farm. They pick up this massive animal incinerator that he has. Definitely one of the kind of main features of this case that made it so horrific. Uh, So Della Millard had this giant animal cremator. He'd bought it a year earlier. It was like $20,000, 10 feet tall, 6,000 pounds. It's used for livestock. That's the only reason that you should have something like this. And what would he be doing in an airport hangar? Well, he kept it at his farm, and he told people that he was going to get into the pet cremation business with his (laughs) uncle, who was a veterinarian. The uncle testified at trial and said that absolutely was not the case, and he'd never had any intention of going into business with his nephew. So there were kind of a a few different stories circulating around to justify this crazy purchase. Um, But it mostly was was housed at the farm, which is essentially abandoned. He talked about doing work there and building a house, but it never happened. Uh, so on the night that Tim Bosma was killed, the, the Crown says he was shot shortly after he left his house with the two guys. Uh, so Millard and Smitch drive from there up to the farm where they pick up the incinerator and take it to Del Millard's air hangar. So that's at the Waterloo Airport, like 55,000 square foot, huge space. Um, but there's no airplanes coming in and out of there. He has no real functioning business. He kind of just uses it as his hang spot. He has classic cars that he works on. Uh, he has a personal mechanic that... Uh, soups up trucks and SUVs. Mm. He, he liked to go racing them in Mexico and stuff, uh, but but no real business. So anyways, they, they tow the truck and the incinerator there, and it's here in the middle of the night that they incinerate the body uh, and wash this truck. Uh, they It was obviously soaked in blood. They wash it off. They rip out the carpets. They rip out the seats. They would burn the seats. Uh, so basically, they're just getting rid of all of the evidence except they leave the truck there. That's kind of the craziest thing. So that night while they're doing this, Donald texts his employees. There's only a couple of them. And he says, nobody come to work tomorrow. Stay away from the hangar. Uh, but the day after that, when people start coming back to work, this black pickup truck is sitting in the middle of the hangar floor. And they don't really ask questions. That's kind of just the way things went there. But one guy uh, becomes suspicious because he'd seen the news. The Tim Bosman case by this time was everywhere. It was all over the news, photos of his truck, photos of him. So he took pictures of it when the coast was clear and he called into Crime Stoppers Hmm. uh, and he confirmed that this was the truck. So on the one hand, I mean, there were a lot of people kind of responding to his testimony at trial saying that he was he was this hero who called into Crime Stoppers. But he didn't tell them where the truck was because his son-in-law worked at the hangar and he was worried that he might have been involved in something. He that he could know. implicate his son-in-law. Yeah, he didn't know why it was there at this point. I think the story that Del Millard had given him was that he bought it in Kitchener. So, so he was reluctant to tell police where the truck was. It wasn't until the next morning that he finally told them. But by that point, the truck was gone. Del Millard had hauled it up to his mom's place in Kleinberg in this giant car trailer. And why did he tell them then? Uh, well, I mean, he got fired. <laughs> I think that, I think he did want to go to police. He just wanted to talk to his son-in-law first and, and kind of figure out what the hell was happening. Hold on, when did he get fired? Like in that day? So the, it was the next morning. So May 10th. So, so he talks to his son-in-law the night before and says, look, this truck is, is this guy's truck. Mm-hmm. We don't know a lot about their conversation because these weren't the most forthcoming witnesses. Okay. Uh, trial. 
Um, but presumably he tells the son-in-law who then we Notified. know was talking to Del Millard that night because there's text messages between the two as yeah. he's moving this trailer or this truck in the trailer. So, I mean, he moved it because he knew about this call. And so in the morning he told him, pack your stuff up, go home. The moving of the truck is kind of another crazy angle to this. It's a girlfriend. So Del Millard's girlfriend is also charged in this case with being an accessory after the fact. Her trial is going to be coming up in November. Uh, she testified. So the night before Del Millard's arrest, she helped him move the truck from the hangar out to uh, the mom's place in Kleinberg. I mean, he already had it in the trailer when he picked her up that night. But then they also drove out to the farm and moved the incinerator out into the woods. But she claimed at trial that she had no idea what they were doing, that she thought she was just helping him out on a work mission that night, and that she was too busy giving him a blowjob while they drove to have asked any questions. So Hmm. that's kind of her explanation as to why she had no idea what they were doing in the middle of the night, moving all this shit around. You've been around this trial for a long time now. Do you think that her explanation is bullshit, or do you believe it? Do you think she is sort of just somebody that was flippantly... My job as a reporter is to be unbiased. (laughs) But you obviously have a... See, this is a good question. Okay, so you are supposed to be unbiased and sort of just present the facts and then people can draw their own conclusions. Mm -hmm. But you're also a human being. Mm -hmm. So you obviously have an opinion on to who you think might be lying and who might not be, no? I mean, there were suggestions at trial, certainly from from the other lawyers, that that story is crazy, that it makes no sense. Um... I think we're going to learn a lot more about it in November. Like we only kind of heard from her for, for two or three days, whatever it was. Um, and you're just hearing her story, you know, like Del Millard didn't testify. We don't know what he says. Um, we're literally just getting her side. So I think when there's more to it, it it'll be kind of a, an easier thing to assess. Um, I mean, if, if I got picked up by Mike in the middle of the night, hauling a giant trailer, and then we moved an incinerator and, out of an abandoned barn into the woods in the middle of the night, I'd probably ask a couple questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, she's a she's a smart girl. She's a university graduate. Yeah. I, I mean, I have questions for sure. So, okay. Um, how long was the trial altogether? It was four and a half months long. Four and a half. And so what's like the, the relationship and the dynamic between the reporters that are covering it, the defense, the, the crown attorney's office? Because there's a lot of characters that you're seeing mm-hmm. every day. Like, what is that... Um, what does that look like and feel like? How do those relationships develop? Yeah, I mean, this one is, is so unique. Usually trials last like a week, two weeks max. Um, and I think a lot of people think that there's this animosity between the victim's family and the media that we're just kind of preying on them. But we actually, all of us, got got quite close with them, as well as the defense. Like, I mean, by the end, all of us would, would meet up, and that's pretty rare, I think, to have the Crown and the defense and the media all socializing. Uh, the Bodsma family was very religious. Uh, they would often be praying in the hallways, and several times they would pray for the jury, they would pray for the lawyers, the judge, they would pray for everyone, including the media. Uh, so they were quite gracious to us. Would they pray for the accused? I don't know. I think they prayed for justice and for the that, that the process was, was done fairly, for sure. Right. So this case had, you know, a lot of national attention. What was that like for you as, you know, a local reporter here in Hamilton? And then, you know, this case is something that's being read all over. So in the beginning, uh, when this first started, like in those initial days when he was still missing, I would go to the press conferences at the police station every day for updates, and there would be maybe three of us. There's CBC Hamilton, the Hamilton Spectator, CH News, 
Uh, but slowly over the course of the week, the room started filling up and it was packed with reporters. So there were dozens for sure. Most of them coming from Toronto, but networks from all over the place. Uh, I mean, Dateline showed up at the trial. So it was interesting. I mean, we're so used to uh, in Hamilton kind of being this uh, little brother city. You know, our stories will sometimes make it into the Toronto papers, but but only kind of when it suits them or when it's a really big deal. So when that started to happen, um, I think everyone started to get a sense of, whoa, maybe this is bigger than than Ancaster and bigger than Hamilton and bigger than any of us. And even I think Tim Bosman's family felt that as well. I mean, they had thousands of people come out to the memorial service, and I remember them saying, his widow, Charlene Bosman in particular, saying that Tim kind of was all of ours now, that everybody was grieving Tim, even these people who'd never met him and weren't even from Hamilton. So it's kind of interesting to see it grow. Are you, like, sick of murder trials, or like, or is it, like, a rush? Like, are you... How was this experience for you uh, on the whole of like being involved in something that was, you know, so dramatic and painful in some ways, but also incredibly fascinating? Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is fascinating. And obviously that that sounds awful because it's a horrific murder and somebody lost their husband and their son and their brother. Uh, but in in kind of a weird way, I mean, you learn a lot about people's lives through death. And sometimes you learn the most about life generally through death, I find. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of fascinating elements to this. I mean, what leads someone to do something like this? Why do people do this stuff to each other? So as much as it, it is definitely kind of awful and and morbid, it's, it's an interesting story and I'm in the business of stories. All right. Welcome to the dessert for the second week in a row. Uh, Max is not here and Shane and I are doing this together. This is a bit of an experimental episode, uh, Shane, Basically, the whole episode, we've been talking about true crime in one way or another. We had Molly on. You know Molly. How was uh, she? She was great. She talked about the Bosma case? Oh, yeah. Big time. Right. So she was like the pre-guest guest, kind of like how Mark Maron does that sometimes? A little bit, yeah. Okay. Well, that was this is the funny thing. That's kind of how it started out. But then we went on for so long about Bosma, and she had some really interesting things to say. We just sort of ended up shifting that to, I would say, what would be the traditional guest slot. So essentially, Molly was sort of the guest this week. You kind of shafted me. You were like, oh, uh... My dad's going to be the Shane this week. So, so first of all, I wasn't throwing the shaft. Max was the one that uh, said, hey, why don't you and your dad come over after you guys go to see Paul McCartney? You'll have had a few drinks. It will be very entertaining. And I was like, what about Shane? He said some things I won't repeat to you, Shane, because I don't want you to feel <laughs> bad. Uh, and then it didn't happen because obviously we went to McCartney and got way too drunk to do a podcast. I had a feeling it wouldn't happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't that upset. I sometimes play up being more uh, shafted than I, I was. But then Max called me and he's like ah we decided uh you know he pulls that max kind of lying thing he's like yeah you he's like we, we actually we couldn't do it without you you're in he acted like he decided that uh he wanted me back in and he's like the theme is true crime or something like that so it's kind of weird yeah. that i have to come up with on the spot a crime story and then i was like you know i'm not a criminal i don't really have a crime story okay well people that listen to the pod heard your uh, ticket scam exactly but then i was like okay i have the ticket story but then I've already told that story. Quick recap of that story is back when I had a job at a movie theater, uh, me and my fellow coworker both lost our jobs at the same time. As we were exiting, we ended up swiping a, a roll of movie theater ticket paper, which is a special type of paper with perforated edges that you know rip cleanly. Yada, yada, yada. We ended up duplicating fake tickets, and uh, my, one of my coworkers ended up getting busted by it. And uh, the courts took care of it, but I ended up getting away scot-free. <laughs> anyway. That's based- actually going to be season three of Serial, so don't <laughs> ruin it. <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, based off that, I got a little taste of being a scam artist. <laughs> so after that, I... Um, okay, so for our listeners, first of all, go back. I think it's episode two or three where Shane tells this story. It's absolutely hilarious. The original story about the ticket scam. So you do this, this crime, you get away with it, you now have a taste for being a criminal. Yeah, it's exciting, it's fun, and to me it seems innocent enough. It seems harmless. Uh, so I ended up making a documentary film about my mom's boyfriend who uh, cheated on her. That's I, another podcast. I'm not sure what episode that is. I submit it to film festivals. I noticed, though, when I'm submitting it to film festivals, that there's an entry fee of $35. And I'm thinking, well... What if I submitted this film and didn't get in? I ended up getting into every film festival I submitted to. It was kind of a, a good film. Thomas Ian Nicholas from American Pie, the actor and rookie of the year, you probably know him from. Absolutely. Ended up coming to a screening and loving the film. Of your movie? Yes. Really? It was kind of a big, yeah, like feather in my cap at the time. <laughs> He's gone on to do nothing since, so no one knows who Thomas Ian Nicholas is. But I feel like he just popped up in some sort of news. He's got a new movie coming out. Oh, he played Walt Disney in like sort of a... Uh, a lower-end Disney movie. Oh, wow. So he's back. That's strong. Back <laughs> is strong. He's working. That's, that's the main thing. But uh, anyway, I, I, I start saying to my, my friend who I, who I uh, did the film with, let's make the Hamilton International Film Festival. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not as big as Toronto, so we'll charge $35 to submit our film. And what we did is we made uh, little pamphlets for, uh, like... Tired of film festivals that don't accept your films? Uh, ex- uh, start en- making entries to the Hamilton International Film Festivals. And we put them inside every flyer for the Toronto Film Festival. So people who don't get into Toronto, they're like all down on their luck. They're like, hey, maybe I have a better shot at the Hamilton International <laughs> Film Festival. And I start putting them up at chapters. Like yeah. I start going around to, they have little push pin boards at yeah, chapters. Yeah, you're flyering your film festival. And uh, you know those little like uh, guitar lesson tabs you pull or like need a babysitter? We added those tabs <laughs> on and we'd go and we'd monitor. We're like, oh, people are taking the tabs to like submit the film, email us and all that. So we start a Hamilton International email. We start a website. You know, we're in on this. And of course the plan is we reject every film. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to be inspirational. Like you actually like are doing this independent film festival. Mike, this is a crime story. Sorry, go on. So, films, <laughs> films start coming in VHS at the time because this was like over ten years ago we did this, and they're just, the films are just coming. We're watching some. Some are like really good. We're like shit. This should make it into the Hamilton International <laughs> Film Festival. But we created rejection letters, sent them out, like sign them. Like we made logos and shit. Like we were in really deep on this. Yeah, this is legitimate fraud. Exactly. You know, we were naive. We were kids at the time. We were only like 25. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Hi, this is Mike jumping into uh, the middle of the story for the first time ever on the Mike on Much podcast. Um, I am doing an editor's note. Shane wanted to make it clear that he was in fact a high school student around 17 years old when the events of this story took place. He also wanted me to let you know that he found a wallet the other day with a lot of cash in it and he returned it fully intact. I cannot verify that, but he wanted you to know that uh, to help you understand maybe what type of character he is now today uh, and not so much in high school. We will now get you back to the rest of Shane's story. But then guys, like good filmmakers, start contacting us. They're like, I find it uh, highly unlikely that the Hamilton International Film Festival is rejecting my film, considering it made it into the Toronto Film Festival, this film festival, this film festival, this. We're like, shit. We're like, 
I'm like, but we made rules and regulations. I'm like, that's a good point, Jim. But if you had read the rules and regulations for the Hamilton International Film Festival, you would have noted that if a film has already been selected to another film festival, it becomes invalid in the Hamilton because we want first right for premiere. <laughs> okay. So we had these stupid rules and regulations that we also made when people came at us and bitched at us. <laughs> I know. Like, I seem like... Like a biggest asshole. But honestly, like I said before, we were young at the time. And you do stupid stuff. And I haven't committed a crime since. Are you concerned? These stories are... I, I, I feel like I've, I've heard bits and pieces of these stories throughout the years. But never quite so blunt and in a confessional manner. Are you concerned that people listening to this that maybe submitted to the Hamilton International Film Festival are going to come after you now? If you did submit a film to the Hamilton International Film Festival, you will get a refund. Just tell us the name of the film. I know I have an email with all the films, and I will send you $35. So, okay, this is good. So this went from being a confession, maybe we're all starting to feel a little uncomfortable about you, Shane, and your ethics, to now this is like a mea culpa. You, you want to pay people back that you ripped off as a young man. Yes. I will. Okay. Will. We just had a, a wedding shower. We, some people gave us a ton of money. I'm like overflowing with cash right now. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, how do they? How do we get into contact? Private message on the Instagram. Yes, DM on our on our Twitter or our Instagram. If you did in fact enter the name of the film, your name, and Shane will refund your money. Yeah. Shaney Boy sixty nine uh, is my Instagram name too. You can contact me directly. DM me directly. Yeah, I'm on Snapchat also. Sure. Did any of the movies uh, stand out? Like, I mean, for your fake film festival? There was one... Like, one that you felt like this would have won if we actually had a legitimate film festival? Yeah, there was a one. A guy did a pretty good. A montage like a Pink Floyd song, and it was pretty good. Like it was, it's basically like a music video, but it was really well done. But you can't use copyrighted songs and get in. Like that was one of the stipulations, so he would have been rejected anyway. Are you are you nervous at all that this is going to get out, or how this might reflect on your character? I'm not saying it reflects on my character good, but everyone does stupid stuff. Like you worked at Taco Bell, Silver City, and pulled some scams. You know, everyone pulls some heist when they're young. Yeah. The key is learning from that moving forward and becoming a good person because, you know, you have a conscience, right? Yeah. No, honestly, it's like some of us give away free tacos to friends. Others have a massively fraudulent, fake international film festival. Yeah. <laughs> Potato, potato. That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, it was a little bit of an experimental episode, uh, the true crime element. Hope that you enjoyed listening. Uh, you can follow us at Mike on Watch on Instagram and Twitter. All of our artwork is done by Jenna Gregory at jennasdoodles.com. The Mike on Watch podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I'm your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if we do not die on the weekend.